Welcome to Vine Pair, the podcast about the conversations you have with a glass in hand. From our New York offices, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And today we're going to be talking about why white wine doesn't get the respect it deserves. And Adam, Does it deserve it? I would say so. And I'm going to start out with this thesis and we're going to see what, what all we think of it. So my general belief on this is that people don't take white wine seriously because they think it's harder to make red wine. Because it fact, is. No, it's not. White wine is... Well, every winemaker tells me that it is. <laughs> well, they got a bottom line to think about. So it, generally speaking, from what I understand from talking to a lot of winemakers, the challenge of making white wine is you can't fuck things up and get away with it. Red wine, you can mess up and you can you can manipulate red wine in a lot of ways that you can't with white wine. There's, Without being even particularly disingenuous, there's lots of ways in which you can um, finesse the wine, you can put it in new oak barrels. There's lots of things you can do to kind of cover up some of your mistakes in winemaking. Red wine is just, in general, a little bit more um, resilient. And white wine is transparent. And if you screw it up, man, you are stuck with some bad wine, which means... Yeah, but Zach, come on. Like, just to play the part of the reader here, like, can't I just get the white wine really cold and drink <laughs> it and no one knows the difference? And isn't that how it's served most of the time anyway? I mean... And for most winemakers, isn't it just kind of like the wine they feel like they have to make... That's super simple. It's like the first thing they do, and then they get on to the, to the bad boy they really care about. I mean, look, all of what you have said is sadly true in a lot of cases. And yes, you can probably drink mediocre white wine if you get it cold enough. But you can also drink mediocre beer if you get it really cold enough. And I don't think any of us are saying, well, you know, whatever. Who cares about beer? Just drink it really cold. Like, we operate under in an environment wherein we think these things matter. And... I think white wine, maybe because it's served too cold or because it's treated as an afterthought by a lot of winemakers, especially here in the United States, um, doesn't get the respect it deserves and is not just a first course summertime porch pounder, I don't know what else to drink wine. There's lots of that out there, but there's also a lot of really cheap, crappy red wine out there. And yet no one says that, you know, Bordeaux or Burgundy or Napa or whatever are not worth drinking. But people are really dismissive of white wine, even the great white wines of the world. And just personally, as a white wine lover, that hurts. I mean, but isn't white wine the like not as good? Uh, again, just playing devil's advocate uh -huh. here, but isn't it not the as ageable, as interesting? I mean, come on. So you have some – if you were to talk to most people, they'd say they know that there's a few whites you maybe can age. But you can't tell me you can age Sauvignon Blanc, can you? Uh, no. And uh, actually, Sauvignon Blanc's a white wine I don't particularly care for. But um, <laughs> but I think – Although it's funny because some Loire producers would tell you you can't age it. Yeah. And I mean there's definitely – like anything, there are some uh, exceptions to the rule. But I think you know what it comes down to is some of it is cultural for sure and, and not just uh, American. Wine drinking culture in general wherein white wine comes first in the meal or white wine comes after you know your aperitif or your cocktail and is dispensed with when the sort of serious business of eating and drinking supposedly happens. You know, with the meat, and, meat, yeah, exactly, and and it really is. It is shocking to me. It's so funny to me because, as a dining culture here in the United States and globally, we have in large part moved away from the the centerpiece of the meal being a big slab of meat on a plate in most contexts, and yet people still associate serious dining and serious drinking with red wine and yeah, beef, lamb, you know, maybe game. Um, and they don't think of, you know, even though a lot of people, their night out, their their dinner out finishes with, you know, with fish or with a vegetable dish, things that in many cases are way better suited to white wine, especially sort of complex, interesting, um, serious white wine. And yet people are still, I mean, I 
do this every single night on the floor. And it's fine if people drink what they want. But it's there's a lot of like full-bodied red wines and really delicate fish. And it just kind of is like, well, like I get it. You think or you've I mean, this is what you like or you've been told that this is what serious wine is. I just don't. I don't get why people are so willing to try so many new things. And yet often when I broach the subject of like white wine with their dinner, it's like, mm, how about Pinot Noir? Because white wine is is seen by the majority of people as being the porch slammer. I yeah. mean, it just it is the cocktail wine. It always has been or always will be. And I think, unfortunately, the other the other problem with white wine is that uh, it's been gendered, which is a problem. Um in a really, really bad way. Yeah. Uh, it, it's seen as much more feminine, a, a much more feminine choice. So you don't have, you know, men being like, oh, I'm going to order a Chardonnay tonight, even though you should. It's it's ridiculous. Uh, that's definitely not in, in a lot of other cultures, but in the United States, for sure, it's a gendered wine. And then I also think, you know, you have these issues where you do have certain service professionals yourself not included, who when you people do order white wines, sort of push you through like, oh, uh, would you plan on ordering a red later in the mm-hmm. meal? You know, like I've, I've had that happen to me multiple times where I've sat down to dinner with friends and we've ordered a bottle of white and the the server has directly asked me, well, do you plan, you, you plan on ordering a bottle of red later, right? Because <laughs> I'll bring this out now and we'll, we'll, we'll get it over with. Yeah. We'll, fi- we'll, fi- we'll finish with the business of the white. Yeah, And then we'll bring on the red where you can seriously contemplate. I will bring the better stemware and you will sit here and you will think very, very, very complex thoughts about this bottle of wine. The white, whatever. But I mean, that's just, that is what it is, right? Because I've never, ha- I mean, the argument you're making to me, I understand. I get where you're coming from, but I've had almost no winemaker ever try to make this argument to me. Even when I take a tour with them in their facilities, it's always I'm going to show you my whites really quickly. Let's talk about my reds. Yeah. My reds are the best. I make the best reds. I get the best scores on my reds. I've never had anyone give a crap about the score they get on their whites. It's true. Or the awards they win. No one cares. Well, I don't dispute any of that. I just think they're all wrong. Uh, I think that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think really like what it comes down to to me is I get where the economics of these things, the entrenched cultural beliefs about these things all are tremendously powerful. And I'm not saying that I don't understand, like I understand why all of those things happen, but I want to talk about two specific things that I understand, but particularly dislike. One of them is, as you mentioned, it's, this is how it's always been and how it always will be. And I think that's fine, but I think it's important to understand some of where this came from. And to me, one of the big issues here is that it is true that white wine in a lot of ways is more fragile than red wine. And and whether that was 150, 200 years ago or even 15 or 20 years ago, white wine is not, generally speaking, as shelf-stable. It doesn't age as long with some exceptions. It needs to be kept in a little bit more pristine conditions than red wine because, frankly, like just from a chemical standpoint, it has fewer preservatives, natural preservatives, na- namely tannins in it because it doesn't usually have uh, any or f- has very few. And as a result, white wine in a pre-refrigerated shipping container world was prone to spoil, was prone to turn, was pr- was prone to oxidize, and in a really obvious and hard to hide way. And again, coming back to what I said at the top of how white wine is so much more transparent. If you mistreated your white wine, not just as a winemaker, but as a merchant or as a restaurant or as a shipper, everyone would know it. And and so I think it became sort of understandable to me that red wine with its, you know, stability and all that became more prized and a safer bet. 
But, you know, Madeira is basically unkillable, and yet we don't all sit here going, man, you know what the greatest wine in the world is? Madeira. Though it is delicious. And and so I think we don't need to be necessarily any more slaves to sort of this previous um, reality of the wine world, wherein now, for the most part, you can be pretty confident that the white wine you buy, whether it's from, uh, you know, the winery just near you if you live in a wine region or right. the wine that was shipped all the way across the world has probably been handled in a very responsible, very um, unrisky way and is probably going to taste more or less the way the winemaker intended. So we can sort of not be worried about that for the most part as consumers, but we are still in a lot of ways trapped by that previous belief or that previous reality. Okay. okay. So, so pop quiz, Zach. If I want to try to take white wine seriously – what white wine should I drink? And do not tell me Burgundy or Riesling. <laughs> well, I actually think, the to me, the two that have been most instructive for me, just in terms of really opening my eyes to the possibilities of what white wine can be as a thoroughly complex and exciting wine would be Chenin Blanc, um, principally from the Loire Valley. But I think okay. you're seeing amazing examples of it coming from, say, South Africa, where there's this incredible history of, of Chenin Blanc production there. You're seeing some of it in the United States. Um, so I think that's certainly one example. Um, and I would say, you know, frankly, oh God, no, second, the second one is like I, now I have 10 in my head. Uh, but I think for me, the other thing that really jumped out at me is uh, wines from the Southern Rhone. So uh, some combination of Roussan, Marsan, and Viognier, again, where you get kind of a just a, a richness of texture, a complexity of flavor. They're wines that that defy the sort of narrow stereotype of white wine as like either the two narrow stereotypes, right? There's the, and this is the real issue, right? White wine has been classed into, well, maybe three camps, right? You've got your big, oaky, buttery Chardonnay, and a lot of people like that, and a lot of people don't. You have your really kind of crisp, tart, lean, citrusy Sauvignon Blanc, and some people like that. Some people don't like that. And then you have Riesling, which is sweet, which obviously isn't necessarily true, but is the general consensus. And so everyone thinks about white wine as one or two or three of those things. And so to me, where I'm obviously, or I'm personally often most interested is wine that does not fall into any of those camps, because I think all of them have their real flaws. Um, and so there's definitely great white wine out there. And the other part about great white wine is like, unless you are looking at Grand Cru Burgundy, it is so much less expensive than red wine. Like if you want to drink truly world-class wine and not pay too much, you should become a white wine fan. Like it is, you can drink exceptional, old, beautiful wines and pay, I don't know, 60, 70 bucks in a shop or 100, 120 bucks on a list. And if you want to have a comparable experience with red wine, man, you better make a whole lot of money. That's really, I mean, that that's a pretty good uh, argument right there. I think that is the craziest thing you can drink really good old white wine, but I will say in the two great in the two wines you gave me, they were both French. So what about Italy, where I oh, think sure. Italy has taught me that I should drink white wine really cold and it should be super refreshing, and you know maybe then I should look at their Barolos, Brunellos, and Barbarescos. Yeah, I mean, look, there's definitely places, and if you go to Piedmont, you go to Tuscany, you go to a lot of Italy. Yeah, sure. The focus is on on red wine. And and I don't mean to say that like that, you know, this is a, an American issue or an American thing. It's true the world of wine over. But I do think that also, you know, even in Italy, like you want to talk one of my absolute favorite varietals would be Arnais from up in Piedmont. And there are some Piedmontese winemakers who are starting to take it very seriously. There's a few that focus uh, almost exclusively on it, if not exclusively on it. Um, you could see, you know, things like uh, Falangina uh, or Vermentino in parts of Italy, Fiano further south. There's great white wine 
But yeah, it's not the focal point. And that's, I'm fine as, I mean, in some ways, look, I'm happy in some ways with the state of play because it benefits right. me as a white wine drinker. Like, <laughs> really, I should be telling all of you to keep buying expensive red wine and leave me all the white wine. But because, you know, I'm of a certain mindset, I would, I would like to want to share the well. Yeah. I would like, and I would like people to not, to not do the thing that is often done and often pushed, which is drink white wine either um, unthinkingly or reflexively or because it's what they're supposed to do. I mean, I am a firm believer that, look, if you don't like white wine or you don't want white wine, don't drink it. Like, I don't I don't mean to say that, like, you should ever feel trapped into doing it because, you know, people tell me all the time in the restaurant, well, you know, we're having we're having halibut and, and crab, but like, you know, we just we don't really like white wine. And I'm like, great, don't drink white wine. Like, that's cool. I don't I'm not going to try and change your mind here. I might if I feel like it, bring you something to taste and be like, hey, just consider this. But like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to force you because it's not my job to force you to drink something you don't want just because in my mind, it's the better, it's the better pairing. But the flip side is like, I think people don't take white wine seriously because they've been told that they shouldn't take white wine seriously. And if they take white wine seriously, they're in some way doing something wrong. And I will tell you personally, like from my own personal experience, one of the most, and it's going to violate your previous conditions, but one of the most revelatory wines for me ever was, and yes, I hate to be this person, but it was an older bottle of Grand Cru Burgundy that someone- knew it. Yeah, well, you know, (laughs) look, man, I can't lie about this sort of thing, Uh, (laughs) but it was a bottle that someone opened for me a number of years ago, and I mean, I just, I tasted some of it, but when you get a chance to taste those wines- and it doesn't have to be Grand Cru so Burgundy. Basic. Uh, I know, right? Basic, basic <laughs> Burgundy bitch here. Um, when you have to, when you get into those wines, and you kind of understand that, like these wines can deliver as much complexity and impact and depth of flavor and length as a great Grand Cru Red Burgundy. Um, that's a cr- truly special thing. And again, if for no other reason, then they're a hell of a lot cheaper. And that is a big <laughs> motivating factor for for a lot of us, myself included. And yeah. And, you know, it's again, it's just, it's just a reality of the world. I mean, part of it is because, you know, white wine is, even though it may be harder to make, it is in most cases less expensive to make than red wine, um, you know, setting aside maybe the cost of the land. But everything else being equal, it takes less in terms of equipment and time, and it can be uh, in the market quicker. Uh, and, you know, those things matter. You know, we all save we all save our money where we can. And uh, for me, if it means being a white wine drinker more than a red wine drinker, then I guess I'll live that way. So quick question for you. Uh, oh, Oh, white wine promoter. Because um, I have a lot of this pink stuff sitting mm-hmm. in front of me right now. Uh, we have a huge tasting in tomorrow. Should we take rosé as seriously as white wine? I think some. I think rosé is kind of this interesting category, and it's its its own entity. And so much of it comes down to the a little bit the intentions of the winemaker as to whether they're really trying to make a a white wine with just a little bit of skin contact. And I guess maybe we could argue that maybe many of those are Von Gris or orange wines or whatever, and they're not really rosé in the traditional sense, or whether they're basically making a lighter version of a red wine and something or something in between. I mean, look, I think we should take all wine seriously to some extent, as long as it's made seriously. Uh, mm-hmm. And if it's made to be served cold and, you know, crisp, then, hey, man, that's cool too. Like, we all like those things and, you know, we all drink our our cans of domestic lager and we all like our cold crisp bottle, you know, $9 bottle of rosé from time to time. But when we're talking about things that we truly are passionate about, then, yeah, I think rosé deserves to be taken seriously. I think the challenge with it is it can be, I think, harder to distinguish. It's been harder for me, I should say, to distinguish truly what's truly great rosé from like what's just pretty good rosé that does the trick and like that's but it's easier fine. you think to distinguish truly great white wine i think so and i think the i think the reason for that is maybe 
just I have had there's more variety. There's more like rose can there can certainly be a wide diversity of styles, but a lot of that some of that diversity is varietally driven or maybe terroir driven. Although I would have my doubts about that, but a lot of it is more like winemaking style driven. And so if you want to make a pick a your your grapes really really early, really high acid, you know, kind of really austere style you're doing that more with winemaking or or grape growing and less with the varietal itself and if you want to make something that's darker and more powerful and has more sort of red wine character but is still kind of lighter bodied and crisp that's again a more of a winemaking decision and a little bit less about the place or the varietal and to me you know i'm more interested in wines that showcase the varietal and the place than the decisions that the winemaker has made but right. that is of course a personal preference and you know i think i think the thing you know it's funny i think rosé frankly in my opinion has taken the place of white wine for a lot of producers where the rosé is the thing they make because they have to make it and because they can make money on it because sometimes they've got grapes that don't get as ripe or sometimes they sunnier off juice and they're like well you know we would have drained this off anyhow and now i can bottle it and sell it for 23 dollars a bottle instead of literally pouring it down the drain um and so rosé has become the catch-all for a lot of that sort of winemaker like i have to make something that changes the pace for my you know people in my tasting room are like oh yes we make a rosé because there seems to be no end to the rosé market and certainly there are producers that make white out of obligation or whatever but i think you're seeing fewer and i mean i feel like i see fewer and fewer examples of that um and that if people make white wine it's either if it's a larger winery, then there's someone who's dedicated to white wine production. Or if they're making, if they're still making white wine, they're making it for a reason. Now that reason right. might be because they sell it and like they have an audience for it, and that's cool. And it might not be the thing that the winemaker is as passionate about. But I, I think there's less throwaway white wine in sort of the wineries that we're talking about. But there is a lot of cheap, innocuous white wine being made in all over the world because you know someone's got to drink something on that hundred degree day. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Well, look, I mean, I, I have to say, I think uh, I'm convinced. I, I think that there's great white white wine out there, especially if uh, it's from France. <laughs> since since those were some of your best. No, but seriously, I, I do think there's. I mean, there's so much great white wine out there. I, I hope we've convinced other people um, that there is great white wine out there for a few reasons. Whether because it matters to you to drink really great wine based on your budget or because you've always loved white wine. You just needed uh, you know, us to give you the excuse to be okay with loving white wine and, and thinking that it's just as great as red. Um, I do think it's important. It is a, a really um, – you know, in a lot of ways, a really amazing wine that's just as worthy, that can be aged just as long um, and that you know should be taken just as seriously and unfortunately – you know, probably the world of collecting and the world of scores has has influenced white wine in a way that that's negative. Um, but you know, things can change. I would also like to say that one of the other big culprits has been, unfortunately, restaurants and sommeliers. And you know, to come back to a little bit to what you were talking about before, the way in which white wine is stored and served in those settings is often really unfortunate because what do most people what do most restaurants do with their white wine they stick it in the refrigerator right and so if you order that bottle it comes out and it's 38 degrees it's too cold for you to really get a lot of the sense of the aromatics and the complexity of the wine and you either have to kind of wait for it to warm up and then maybe it is what you want it to be or it isn't um or 
you know, they're serving it to you in a, you know, a tiny wine glass because those are the white wine glasses. And apparently, like, white wine doesn't need to be swirled or doesn't have aromatics. I mean, shit, those are more aromatic wines in most cases than reds. It doesn't really make sense yep. to me why we serve our red wines in these, you know, gigantic, you know, bowls. And yet, white wine, you get like, yeah, you know, here's here's a glass that holds eight ounces. I'm going to put five of them in there. Uh, good luck. It is incumbent on, you know, the people that want to, myself included, <laughs> who want to sell white wine to people in a restaurant setting in particular, to take it and treat it as seriously as you do red wine. Store it at the proper temperature. Serve it at the proper temperature. Allow it to open. In some cases, these wines are not necessarily, in the same way that red wines need time to breathe and to can't, so do white wines in their own way. Serve it in the in glassware that actually showcases the wine. And then, as you explained, don't assume that that person is then going to want red wine. Some of us may drink white wine the whole meal through. So look, I mean, th- what you just said is amazing. I want to close with a story uh, that is kind of completely indicative of what you're saying. So last week, I went to a restaurant in New York City that is considered to be run by one of the best chefs in the city, one of the best you know, restaurants in the city. And has a very well-known bar. And we sat down and ordered two glasses of white, uh, a really beautiful Chablis, and a Chenin Blanc. Both were served so cold that you could not taste them. And when we said something to the sommelier, the actual sommelier, we were told, oh, well, this is how everyone likes them. So this is how we serve them. We said, well, you realize that we can't (laughs) taste anything here. And he was like, well, yeah, but that's how we serve them. It was really interesting to me that even he didn't see an issue with it because he was like, well, aren't you just having an after work glass of wine at our super nice bar before you, you're not dining with us. I don't know. You know, and that's the problem. Yeah. Well, we'll just keep, I'll keep, you know, holding the banner for white wine. Don't, <laughs> don't drink it too cold. Think about it, you know, and you know what? Look, drink it when it's 95 degrees out and you're sitting on the porch too, because it's delicious in that context. And then maybe you do want to serve it as cold as you can get it. But uh, the rest of the time, yeah, please treat your white wine a little bit better. So then quick, quick, Zach, what would your recommendation be for someone who is at home and doesn't have a wine fridge? What should they do with the white wine? How should they chill it? And how should like, should they put it in the fridge for two hours and pull it out and let it sit for 30 minutes before they serve it? What, what's a quick way that they know that they're sort of serving the wine at the temperature you're talking about them serving it at? Yeah, I think the refrigerator is totally your friend. I just think you want to give yourself, yeah, like 20 to 30 minutes. Kind of depends on what you're going to do with it and how and how kind of quickly you're yeah. going to drink it. I think if it's you and one other person drinking the wine and you're going to be drinking it over the course of an hour or an hour and a half, you know, I'd take it out of the fridge 20, 25 minutes before I'm going to start drinking it, if you can gauge that or whatever, you know, and open it, taste it, have it, you know, maybe put it back in the fridge for a little while, like it it doesn't have to be exactly 46 degrees to be enjoyable. It's just the, the colder it is, the less aromatically expressive it's going to be. And then at some point, if it gets kind of too warm, depending on the wine, it can kind of taste fat and flabby unless it's a really, yep. really, really high acid white. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's it's not about like sticking a thermometer in the wine to get it exactly right. I think it's more about recognizing that if you take it right out of the refrigerator and drink it, it is going to be way less expressive than it will be when it warms up by, you know, eight to 10 degrees. 
And if what you're going for, if you're drinking a decent bottle of white wine, you probably want to get all the nuance out of it. I mean, it's not, you know, just like you wouldn't want to drink. I mean, look, we do the same thing with cheap red wine sometimes, like fruity reds. We chill them down for the reason that, like, we don't want them to be so expressive. We want a little less fruitiness. We want to kind of, you know, we want a little bit more of the refreshing nature of it. Um, But we don't do that with, you know— Bordeaux. We don't do that with, you know, great Pinot Noir. Like you drink it, you know, cool, but not cold because you want it to taste the best it can. And so, right. um, you know, really it, it, there's a much less variation or much less of a gap between how you should want your red wines and your white wines served. I think people would probably, your average person at home probably drinks their white wines at, you know, or even in a restaurant most of the time at like 38 to 40 degrees and their red wines at like 60 to 65 degrees. And like, you maybe should be like 46 and 56. Like that's probably a little bit better place to be. So so really if it feels like it's way too cold for red wine, it's probably too cold for white wine. Cool. Awesome, Zach. This was super interesting. And thank you for helping uh, convince us all we should drink more white. I appreciate you letting me get on my soapbox and rant. <laughs> awesome. Uh, look forward to chatting next week. Sounds great. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you'd rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now, for the credits. VinePair is recorded in New York City at VinePair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patry, and the show is produced by Zach Jabal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grinberg. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our executive editor, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.